Okay, so we are continuing in our look at the first prologue in the book of Judges. In our last section, we saw how Judah's military campaign to complete the conquest of the promised land of Canaan had entered its second phase with a turn to the south. If you recall, Judah first went up, went north, then turned south to Jerusalem. Recall that we saw seeds of conflict sown early on, already in this chapter, as the Israelites inducted into their midst the Kenite Midianites, who later decide to switch sides, abandoning, abandoning their Israelite allies and settling with the inhabitants of the land which Israel had been commanded by the Lord God to drive out. So now we're going to start um, with verse 18 of chapter 1, and we're continuing on. This is part 4 of prologue number 1 in the book of Judges. And this is the start of phase 3 of Judah's campaign to retake the promised land. And here we're going to see that Judah turns from the hills of Jerusalem to the southwest and the coastal lowland. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Judges chapter 1, verse 18, and I'll begin to read. Please follow along. And it's written, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory territory. Now Gaza was a very important city. At one time um, in the 15th century, it served as the capital of the Egyptian province of of Canaan, although the Egyptians probably didn't call it Canaan. um, They likely called it Phoenicia at that time. And these three cities that are mentioned in verse um, 18, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, are cities, the three major cities of the coastal plain along the Mediterranean. And they'll later be part of the Philistine uh, Pentapolis, the, the five major cities of the Philistines. But this is going to happen later after the takeover of the region by the Sea Peoples, probably around the 13th, 12th century uh, BC. And the text here seems to be unaware of these major events occurring. So we think they probably happened after the arrival of the Israelites um, in this area. And if you know your Old Testament, you recall that it testifies to the fact that the Philistines become the chief arch enemies of, of Israel. In verse 19 and 20, we're told the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. So we, we talked about the three sons of Anak um, last Sunday night and who they were. This is just kind of a recapitulation uh, in here. And these verses, these two verses, verses 19 and 20, basically are offering a summary evaluation 
of Judah's efforts to fulfill the divine mandate to take the land. And there's a positive aspect to this summary. They were able to wrest control of the hill country, that area around Jerusalem. There's a negative aspect of this summary. They were unable to take the river valleys because of the Canaanites' technological superiority. So they were able to seize the high ground, but they couldn't take the lower ground. Basically, it's a, uh, there's a military conundrum that was going on here, but it goes deeper than that. But we're going to deal with that first to take a look at it. So the, the, the Ju- Judeites were infantry soldiers. They were unable to devise an effective strategy against the state-of-the-art resources that were mounted against them in the plains, in the, in the flatlands. And that is these iron chariots, chariots made of iron which, of course, would be completely ineffective in hill country. You can't use chariots in that sort of uh, terrain, but very, very effective in the flat plains. So this, the comment that we find that uh, the Canaanites had iron chariots is extremely significant, and not only because it expresses the impressive nature of, of their military hardware, but it also announces the beginning of the Iron Age in this region. In textual and archaeological evidence shows that iron was known in the ancient Near East prior to what's known as the Iron Age, but the metal was, was very rare and was very precious. However, there was a discovery probably around just before this time we're reading about in Judges of the process of uh, carburization. That's where iron is treated with uh, a charcoal fire, it's heated, and in the heating process, it absorbs the carbon from the charcoal and becomes much stronger and much easier to work with and ideal for use on chariots, weapons of war, things of that nature. We don't know how much iron, of course, was used in the chariots. That's an open question. They obviously weren't made completely of iron. They probably had some iron overlays. And most likely, most importantly, their wheels, their wooden wheels may have been sheathed in iron, which would have assisted them greatly in maneuvering on the open plains. But the real significance to the Canaanites' iron chariots lies in the theological implications of Judah's inability to overcome this superior technology. We read this in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3, um, where it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Now think back to the book of Joshua. After the, um, actually, the, the miraculous, the supernatural conquest of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, no one, no matter how technologically advanced, 
and superior to the Israelites should have been able to withstand Judah's attack. If we read Joshua 17, 16 through 18, according to which Joshua had encouraged Ephraim and Manasseh by specifically declaring that the Canaanites' superior strength and their possession of iron chariots would be no hindrance to the conquest of the river valleys and plains. This is something that, that the, the Israelites, specifically Ephraim and Manasseh, had been told ahead of time that they would encounter and it would not hinder them in what God had commanded them to do. In reading Joshua 17, 16 through 18, we find written, the people of Joseph said, the people of Joseph would be Ephraim and Manasseh, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshin and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So are told that they're going to be able to overcome this. And in Judges, back to Judges, in verse 19a, the first part of that verse, the narrator explicitly attributes Judah's successes in the hill country not to equivalent military power, but to the presence of Yahweh, to the Yahweh being with them. Then why, we must ask, could they not take the lowland? The Lord God's with them in the highland. They seize it. They do what they're supposed to. They move to the lowland. They're told earlier by their great leader Joshua that the chariots of iron will not be a problem for them. They will be able to drive out the Canaanites in the plains, but yet they do not. The text does not tell us specifically, but I can tell you this. The problem was not Yahweh's problem. The problem was not the Lord God's problem. It was not that he failed to do it. It was Judah's problem. And we can see this in what's going on in the prologue. We have to kind of put it all together and, and connect the dots to see it. So there's two options, I would say. The Judahites either experienced a failure of nerve at this point, or they were satisfied with their past achievement. Yeah, we got the hill country. What do we need the plains for? Or, you know, Chariots of iron, oh my gosh, we don't really want to go up against that, do we? In verse 21, it says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites who lived with the so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So it's not only Judah that is suffering setbacks in attempting to complete the occupation of Canaan. Now we see a major failure on the part of the tribe of Benjamin in their attempt to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been a tough nut to crack for the Israelites. 
First attempt to take Jerusalem, we read, back, we read about back in uh, Joshua chapter 15. Judah attempts to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem, also known as Jebus, but they fail. The second attempt, we read about early on in Judges in verse 8 of chapter 1, where it says, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So we dealt with this then, but just to refresh your memory, there's, we, we have a quandary here. If Judah captured Jerusalem, then why is Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, attempting to take it again? So there's two options. Either, either Judah failed to hold the city after taking it, and it was retaken by the Jebusites, or I think maybe more likely, um, just based on later history, that Judah only captured the unfortified western part of the city, while the Jebusites, they retained the fortified eastern part, the part that was later called the city of David, which we are told in 2 Samuel was only conquered by King David um, during his, uh, his time, that the Jebusites were there until then. I think that makes the most sense. But the reason we see both Judah and Benjamin fighting Jerusalem for Jerusalem is that Jerusalem was located on the boundary between Judah and Benjamin's allotted territory. So it was, it was for really a, a something that, that both of them would have been, both of the tribes would have been uh, focused on driving out um, the inhabitants. In following Judah's partial and or temporary victory at Jerusalem, depending on which option you pick from uh, what we're told in verse 8, um, the Jebusites, who could not be dislodged by the Benjamites, continued to dwell in the fortified southeast hill until the time of David, like I said. So imagine this, the Benjamites, who'd seized the rest of Jerusalem. Every day when the sun rises... They look at the rising sun and they see the enemy there that they failed to drive out. They have to deal with that failure day after day. This brings us to our first point tonight. <clears throat> that's God in his sovereignty has decreed that human response and effort must take place alongside his divine action. The biblical worldview that we have is not the fatalistic view of man-created world religions where um, we can't do anything, uh, it's in God's hands and we just do nothing. And if God, uh, or whatever name we call God by, decides it's going to happen, it'll just happen regardless of what we do. That's, that's fatalism, and that, that is not the, the proper Christian worldview. The Bible shows us very clearly that God leads, guides, and blesses, then requires his people to act in accordance with what he commands. When the people of God are faithful to God's commands, mighty cities such as Jericho fall. There was no fearfulness or hesitation when Israel was commanded to march around the massive walls of that mighty city. They didn't hesitate to do it, although it made no good earthly sense, did it? That this is how you're going to take 
a massive fortified city with walls so thick that a chariot could be driven on them, that you just march around it and you'd blow a horn. Yet we're seeing in Canaan the timidity that was first apparent as Israel hesitated at the border of Canaan. There's this seed of fear, I would say, that we see that's, that's been lodged in the thinking of the Israelites. <clears throat> we read this in Deuteronomy, first chapter, verses 19 through 33. It's, it's a long section, but I want to read it to you because um, it, it, it sets the stage for what's happening, and you can see how, um, how the Israelites are reacting to where God's taking them and the reassurance and the promises that are given to them. But here in Judges, we're seeing that this has kind of slipped from their thinking, that they've reverted back to this defeated attitude. So Deuteronomy 1, 19-33, we read, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be fear, do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskal and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Fear of what if is a lack of faith in God. Moses clearly calls this exactly what it is, unbelief. You did not believe the Lord your God, Moses says. No matter that God had promised that he would fight for them, he would carry them in his arms, he would go before them, he would drive out their enemies, and they would be victorious. 
regardless of the opponent's superior military technology. They did not believe God. That's what it comes down to. And this is what we do when we succumb to our fears in the face of what God has set before us. When the word of our Lord commands us to gather together with our brothers and sisters to worship him, but we do not do that because of our fears, then as Moses said to Israel, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. When the word of our Lord commands us to go in the authority given to him and make disciples of all nations, but we do not because of our fears, then as Moses said to Israel, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, we must hearken to the word of the Lord. And in Judges, verse 22 We read, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and his all, his family, go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Now that story should sound a little bit familiar. It's give you a clue. We talked about another city where there was a similar incident. I'm going to draw that out a little bit, though. Before recounting the many failures of the northern tribes, which we're going to see in this section... We're given, an, we're given an account of an isolated victory by the northern tribes. The expression, the house of Joseph also went up in verse 22, alludes back to the very beginning of Judges in, in verse 4, where it says, Judah went up. So the author here is, 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 is hoping to draw your attention to that and, and think, oh, that sounds familiar. That's, that happened before in this account. So there's a parallel coming that the author wants us to see between Judah and Joseph. At the very beginning of this new section we're in, we see this parallel. Judah experiences one failure when they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had the chariots of iron. Joseph experiences one success in capturing Bethel, the one success among these northern tribes. So, as I said, the house of Joseph is the two tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And the key to victory for the house of Joseph is in the last section of verse 22, where it says that the Lord was with them. And this victory of Joseph at Bethel is reminiscent of the Israelite victory at Jericho. Both these victories hinged on an occupant of the city assisting the Israelite spies that were on scouting missions. Rahab at Jericho, we've read her account in Joshua, and this unnamed man at Bethel. 
However, there's a, there's a marked difference that we need to see here. After the defeat at Jericho, Rahab and her family are fully integrated into the faith of the Israelites and their life. They became part of the people of God. But the man at Luz or Bethel, no, he's permitted to leave. And he builds a new Luz and continues his life as a Hittite, as a pagan. Essentially, by doing this, allowing this to happen, God's mandate is again betrayed. Joseph, the house of Joseph, allowed this pagan citadel to be merely transferred to a new location. The new city of Luz functions as an Israelite-sanctioned symbol of the Canaanite in their midst. The city that the house of Joseph conquered was claimed long ago by Yahweh and the patriarch Jacob. So Bethel may ring a bell when we read it here. This is where God had appeared to Jacob as he fled, where Jacob had erected a pillar to commemorate the encounter, where he had built an altar, which he had named Bethel, the house of God, and where he had buried his own dead. So in Israelite tradition, this city, Luz, was already a sacred site. What we have here in Judges is a restaking of this ancient claim for this place that belongs to Israel. However, while the physical Canaanite Luz is obliterated, a spiritual Canaanite Luz is allowed to continue. And as with each instance of compromising God's word, the consequences of this are to be significant and far-reaching. And this brings us to our second point this evening, which is we cannot compromise when it comes to the word of the Lord. Compromise is the way of man, not the way of God. Compromise, we can view it positively as a settlement of differences by mutual concessions, But we must remember it has a negative aspect also, which is to expose or make vulnerable to danger. Think about this. Compromise and obedience to the Lord are mutually exclusive. To be partially obedient is to be fully disobedient. We are tempted to compromise, though, aren't we? Why? Well, to avoid conflict. Very few of us enjoy conflict. We're tempted to compromise to get along with other people. That's what what we want to do. We want to get along. We don't want to be at odds with people. We're tempted to compromise out of selfishness to get what we want by giving away that which is not important to us. But think about this. In a world of compromise, there can be no ethics, no virtues, no right or wrong, the law, Both God's law and human law becomes meaningless, and there are no clear answers to anything. Everything becomes situational ethics. That is, it all depends. Depends on this or it depends on that. We see this compromise throughout our society, but I picked, I've got a couple of examples for you in history. 16th century, the Protestant Reformation in England. 
Queen Elizabeth I is on the throne. She forces a compromise between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. She's tired of her subjects of these two different religions being at odds with each other and disrupting her realm and her reign. She pushes for a religious, religious settlement. It's called Via Media, or the Middle Way. Elizabeth wants a middle way between these two theological systems. As a result, the Church of England has retained much of the trappings of Roman Catholicism, but it severed the authority of the Pope from England, which was the main aim of her father, Henry VIII, and Elizabeth, that they were not going to be controlled by someone else. They were not in it for theological clarity. It was a political maneuver on Elizabeth's part. So, the English Reformation was really largely political in nature. And the, Puritanic, the Puritan movement developed as a, as a response to this. <clears throat> Conflict festered and later erupted into the English Civil War, a war between the royals led by King Charles I and the parliamentarians, mainly Puritans, um, men such as Oliver Cromwell, um, because of the leaning of the English monarch towards other Roman Catholic monarchs, siding with them, putting politics before religion, and obviously to men like Oliver Cromwell and other men of faith that were in Parliament, that could not be countenanced, that God's word could not be compromised. Currently, I suggest to you the abortion issue is an area where many are tempted to compromise. And this compromise makes it difficult for many to declare that the killing of an unborn baby is always wrong because we, we live in a culture of situational ethics. So is abortion wrong? And people say, well, it depends. What's the situation in which the child was conceived? If it's claimed that the act of conception was against the will of the mother, then the, the child can be killed that, because that's a horrendous act that happened against the mother. Usually, in those cases, though, nothing happens to the perpetrator, if a perpetrator is even named. Or, on the other hand, we get the, the, the question, the predicament that's posed, well, what about the health of the mother? Well, certainly... If the life of the mother hangs in the balance over her pregnancy and the delivery of the child, that is a very difficult question. But that's not what I'm speaking of tonight. Um, that's not something that any one of us in just a few moments could give a good answer for. That is, that is, that is, a, that is terrible and that is difficult. But... This very real concern has been watered down through the process of compromise to the point where now it can be a matter of quote-unquote mental health. That is, if the pregnancy makes the expectant mother unhappy or sad, then it's medically justified to kill her baby. This is where compromise brings us. Compromise is often called the art of politics. That's true. 
Maybe that's why nothing ever gets done in Washington, D.C. or in Sacramento, or what gets done in Sacramento is not good. But, but think about this. Compromise is the art of politics. However, the Lord our God is an absolute monarch who is sovereign over all things. His decrees are final and binding. They are not bills in Congress that go to committee and have writers attached to them that are not the work nor the intent of the original author of the bill. It's, it's, a, it's an entirely different animal, so to speak. Politics does not play a role here. Compromise is also the way of the marketplace. However, the Lord our God offers us nothing for sale. What he gives us, we cannot bargain for. Salvation through Christ cannot come at a cheaper price. We cannot bargain for that and say, that's too much to pay. I want to pay less because we're not paying anything for it. It's a free gift. Our good works, our efforts, anything we want to bring to God have absolutely no value in this. The price has been set and it is firm. And that price is the lifeblood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. And the only thing we can bring to the table is our sin. There's no compromise there. And I want to take us right into our third point, which is the book of Judges can be viewed as a how-not-to manual for God's people. Examples, role models, and mentors we know are very important in many aspects of our lives. Those are things that help us to become the people that we are. Or perhaps the people that you might want to be. And we usually view these helpful experiences and people from a positive vein. Sometimes, though, we can benefit from negative versions of these things. As long as we're able to differentiate between the two. And that's readily apparent in, in cases, in many cases, where people follow evil role models or lifestyles patterned after bad examples that they have seen. We see this in some families. Although I've seen many families where people have rejected the bad examples and the bad role models and turned away from it, and just anecdotally, the, the, the ones I've seen where it's actually worked and the person has changed, it's, there's always been the work of the Holy Spirit involved. That's a 35 years in police work. That's the only time I saw people break from these bad examples, these bad lifestyles, was God. It was the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in their life changing them. It might go without saying, at least to the biblically literate, that not everything in the Bible is there for us to emulate, right? This is what the mockers and the scoffers do not understand, though. There are many examples in the Bible of wicked and sinful behavior. They're not there for us to copy, for us to be like. Sometimes even words of advice that we can read in here are unwise and even dangerous, for example, the counsel of Job's friends in the book of Job. Have you talked to people who've, who've read the book of Job and are just confused by it because it's like, I don't know what 
is good advice and what's bad advice. At first I thought this was good advice because it's in the Bible, and then I'm realizing that can't be good advice. That's not something that I should be doing. We have to know the story, right? We can't just cherry pick verses out and expect to get everything right. We need to be familiar with and understand the whole counsel of God in order to get this. Every word that God has inspired to be written in Scripture is purposeful. When we understand the big story the the Bible's trying to tell us, then we profit from the how-not-to sections, like in Judges, as well as the how-to sections of the Bible, which, thankfully, are many more than the how-not-to. But, but that's what I want you to keep in mind as we go through Judges. Because we're going to see some horrendous things that are not examples of how life should be. And that's what the author of Judges is intending. This is not going according to the way it should be going. Because the people have turned away from God. Every man is doing what he wants. Move on to the last section to close out tonight's message. Verses 27 through 36. Follow along with me. And I want you to notice recurring phrases here. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now, just to clarify, Manasseh's land allotment, if you recall, has been divided that Manasseh was given two allotments. One was on one side of the Jordan to the east. That was the side that was given to them, as allotted to them under Moses. And, and West Manasseh, basically, is what we're uh, referring to here. You know, like there's West Covina and there's Covina. There's not an East Covina. But, um, so there's a West Manasseh. Not, that, it's not called that, but, you know. You know what I'm saying, right? It's west of the Jordan. And that was allotted to Manasseh, the the half-tribe that continued on into the Promised Land uh, under Joshua. And notice in verse 28 that Manasseh's failure to drive them out is referred to as that of Israel as a whole. That the the author has shifted from Manasseh's failure to a failure of Israel. That's that's telling. That's telling us something there that perhaps we're talking about Manasseh, but this problem is not just Manasseh's problem. This problem is Israel's problem. So moving on, verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so that the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahlab, or of Akzeb, or of Helbah, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. But the Asherites lived among the Canaanites." 
the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbem. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Acrium from Selah and upward. So this repetition of certain phrases, most obviously, did you notice, did not drive out. That's, did not drive out. Did not drive out. Did not drive out. Did not drive out. Repeated five times. Also lived among. Because Ephraim and Zebulon failed to drive out the Canaanites, it's said that the Canaanites lived among the Ephraimites, and the Zebulites. However, notice with Asher and Naphtali, it's even worse. The Asherites and the Naphtalites lived, they were the ones who lived among the Canaanites. The Canaanites didn't live among them. It was the other way around. They're described as being subject people to the Canaanites. This is horrible. And then we have this forced labor thing going on. Not only do these tribes fail to drive out the inhabitants, they make arrangements with them, putting them to work in establishing the Israelite cities in a land where they've been commanded by God to drive out these people. Dependence on non-citizen labor apart from what we're reading here, but just historically and culturally, we see that this always sows the seeds of destruction for a culture. Examples in history. The city-state of Sparta in ancient Greece. They had a slave class that worked the land, and the men were just concerned with military matters. Well, the slave class, as is always the case, grew to be larger than the landowners, and then were a massive threat, and Sparta falls. Think of the antebellum states, those are those states of the South and the U.S. before the Civil War, and the slaves there, and what happened to that region of the country, and what happened to the whole country as, as, as part and parcel of this evil practice of forced labor. And think of what we're experiencing in, in the U.S. now, although we may not technically say that we have forced labor, we do have an underclass of labor that is being brought into our nation against our nation's laws and against the will of the majority of the American people, which is creating significant issues in our society. And it's even worse for the Israelites because they are, they are violating the, what God has commanded them to do by doing this. And the author of Judges makes it clear in no uncertain terms that the northern tribes failed in their mandate to take the land as their inheritance from God. In fact, we might call this the anti-conquest. 
that we're reading about. How God instructs the Israelites to fight is made very clear in the book of Deuteronomy. In these instructions, we see there's two general types of warfare that the Israelites are to engage in. The first group of instructions that they're given pertains to cities very far away. The second group of instructions pertains to the cities of those people that the Lord God is giving to them for an inheritance. There's a massive difference, and I'm going to read this because it's important that we understand this as we go through this attempt to retake the promised land. The second group is the group that the book of Judges is concerned with. So Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 18, read, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And remember, this is the first group. This is the cities very far away. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, referring to Canaan, the promised land. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. That's harim. It has set them apart, devote them as an offering to the Lord for destruction. These are the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So the situation that we've read about tonight in Judges, verses 27 through 36, begins with the failure of Manasseh and Ephraim in the central region to gain control over six city-states, all of which lay along and were part of the major trade routes of the day. Zebulon, Asher, and Naphtali to the north fail similarly. Although at times the Israelites are able to impose forced labor upon the Canaanites, they nevertheless co-inhabit the area in violation of what they've been commanded by God. The account we've read tonight repeatedly refers to a failure to drive out. Emphasis also falls on acts of compromise. Even the imposition of forced labor implies an agreement of sorts. Rather than driving them out, the Israelites worked things out with the Canaanites. There's many in the church today that applaud themselves for working things out with the world. In fact, that seems to be the goal in many denominations and governing bodies and local congregations. Let's just work things out. But in truth, when we work things out with the world, we are working against the Lord our God. And may that never be so with us. 
Join me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word you've given us. Thank you for this message, Father. Although it is it's a hard one, it can be hard for us to apply it into our modern day life, Father, to conceptualize it. Father, what I pray is that we always be obedient to you. That's the message you have for us in this passage of Scripture, that even when we do not understand completely that we are to follow your word, that we are not to compromise, that you love us, that you know what is best for us, that your decrees are good, they are good for all. Father, we give thanks for this day that we've been able to gather together as your people, that we've been able to gather together as brothers and sisters and hear the word preached, that we've been able to lift our voices up together. Father, this is, this is a time when it's, we get a taste of what heaven would be like when we're with the brethren. We're in a lighted auditorium. We, when we lift our voices in praise, we can see each other. We're not in, a, in, a, in a, dark, a dark auditorium where there's spotlights on musicians on the stage and the focus is on them. No, Lord, we can see each other, just like in heaven where we'll see each other praising, praising you, praising the Son, praising the Holy Spirit. Father, we'll know each other. We'll be joyful. Thank you for that taste of heaven that we're given each Lord's Day. Father, I ask that you bless these brothers and sisters who are here tonight. Get them home safely. Bless them in the coming week. Guide them. Help them through their toil and their troubles, Father. I pray for the brothers and sisters watching um, on the Internet. Father, do the same for them. I pray for friends watching or here that don't know Christ, Father, that they may have their hearts and their minds opened by the Holy Spirit, Father. And we give thanks in this all, in Jesus' name, amen.